Shoes? What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. No, it hasn't. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And, you know, enough of the niceties. Let's just get into this episode, okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk to you Ugh. about your personal life. Gross. Let's talk about the Oscar nominations. Do you want to start top up? Do we want to do best picture? Let's start with best picture. That could take us years to just get through that category. Well, we've got All Quiet on the Western Front, which I did not see, but I hear is incredible. Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, which I did just see. How was it? Don't recommend. <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone says. If you want to get a history of Spielberg, I would actually recommend a documentary that uh, HBO Max put out or you can find it on HBO Max HBO did about five years ago which goes into his whole career history because the weird thing about the Fablemans is by the end of the film you don't get the sense that the character that is based on Steven Spielberg which he either needs to be Steven Spielberg or not like there's too much back and forth of things that really happen in Spielberg's life and then things that were just inspired by his life but I think why people think The Fablement is such a good film is it ends on such a strong note, which is, a, is something that really happened to Steven Spielberg. When he was 18, he got invited to a TV producer's office, and the TV producer was like, oh, you don't want to meet me. Do you want to meet the greatest filmmaker alive? And it was John Ford. But Steven Spielberg got David Lynch to play <laughs> John Ford. Uh, I love when a famous director plays another famous, famous director. director. Like we also got that in Feud, Bed and Joan when John Waters played William Castle. Oh, yeah. Or just when directors are actors in movies like in Wolf of Wall Street. In Wolf of Wall Street, you have Spike Jones, uh, Rob Reiner as Leonardo DiCaprio's dad, and I think John Favreau, but maybe I'm making that up. So I think people think that it's a good movie just because that scene is so incredible, but then the story of how Spielberg got David Lynch to be in the movie is even more interesting than the totality of the Fablemans, which is Spielberg, who worked with Laura Dern on Jurassic Park, called Laura Dern and was like, can you please call David Lynch <laughs> and convince him to be in my movie? And David Lynch was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but I want the costume a week before because I'm going to wear the costume for a week to get into character. Love that for him. Best picture. Moving on. Tar. Top Gun Maverick. Are you thrilled? I still haven't seen that. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I know. I've heard. Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. See, I feel like I can never weigh in on the Best Picture nominees because now that there's 10, like I really haven't seen any of them. Well, the confusing thing is once they opened up the category to 10 films, I feel like they should have bumped up to they should have bumped up director to 10 directors because it's still down to five. So half the directors who have Best Pictures nominated are not in the Best Director category. So you've got Martin McDonough, the, the Daniels, Steven Spielberg, Todd Field, and Ruben Oslin for Triangle of Sadness. Oh, so we know what the top five films really are. Yeah, and Spielberg won at the Golden Globe. So I feel like this is going to be a, like, a career Spielberg award. Right. We've got Best Actor. We've got Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for Banshees of Anna Sheeran, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Muskell for After Sun, which I hear is incredible. Um, I feel like this film is instantly going to make me cry because it's about the writer-director's memory of her father and like a day they spent together. But anyway, and Bill Nye for a film called Living, which I don't think is a real movie, but I'm always down to, <laughs> to have Bill Nye nominated for awards i'm sure it's great i'm sure he's fantastic speaking of which we got this call is anna wintour gonna go to the oscars if he is nominated and he goes to the oscars and anna isn't there like i'll cry to directly answer this caller i believe that anna wintour will be with bill nye but at the after party she will not be his date i'm sure he'll do something classy like bring his daughter yeah, like, I don't think they're posing together at the Vanity Fair after party. Like, they're both going, yeah, for sure. But I don't know if that's happening. Although I would love for that to happen, because it seems like 
Bill Nye is probably not going to win, right? If no. he did, it would be a big upset. But he could win the night if he showed up arm in arm with Anna Wintour. But you would say, well, you know, Anna Wintour's never been to the Oscars, so maybe she wants to go. But Nye, she has been <laughs> to the Oscars before in 2015. I tried to understand why, and I especially wanted to understand why she was seated next to Harvey Weinstein that year. I think she was probably a guest of his. Those are like tough tickets, and she was like in the first few rows. I know, but you think he's not going to get to have like four plus ones? Like he's the one person that probably could pull that off at the Oscars. I remember Anna Wintour at the Oscars because... It wasn't just the Harvey Weinstein thing. It was the fact that she was wearing sunglasses yes. in the audience, which is pretty unheard of unless you are a male actor with a drug problem or like a, a Jack Nicholson I was gonna say, or, or something, Jack which same, same. Well, according to the biography that we read, she is pretty much blind as a bat and her prescription is in her sunglasses. Well, you can get prescription glasses. Yeah, but she doesn't want to be a nerd. <laughs> She'd rather look like a bitch than look like a nerd. Respect. I agree with this caller. I will be very upset if Anna does not attend. Shall we get into best lead actress? Sure. We've got Kate Blanchett, Anna de Armas, Andrea Riceberg, who I guess that uh, campaign, that viral campaign worked for her. Incredible. Someone brought up the point that it's twofold point, one of which is, oh, the acting voting body had the power all this time to nominate Hidden Gem performances and just have chosen not to do that up until this year. And then I saw another tweet that was like, Tony Collette must have no friends because notoriously <laughs> she didn't get nominated for Best Actress for Hereditary. But here's the thing. Do you remember that Jessica Chastain won Best Actress last year? Yeah, I actually did remember that. All right. Well, my point is it's better to be snubbed for a performance. Like we're still talking about the fact that Tony Collette didn't get nominated for an Oscar for Hereditary. Also, I realized I have seen, what's her name? Andrea Riceberg. She was in... The new Matilda movie. She played Matilda's oh, mom. Yeah, she was great. Love her. Uh, and then rounding out the category, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans. I mean, she should win for Best Bob. It feels like she's always nominated and she never wins. And I can't imagine how much of her life she has spent doing the whole Oscars circuit and never winning. She's never won. No. What did she win for? Tell me, she should have won for Brokeback Mountain. They should have just gotten it out of the way the first time she was nominated. Because the way she delivered that that part where she's like, you weren't fishing or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think for our award ceremony that we're talking about doing, we, we got to do like best blunt bob uh, and then best line delivery. I guess you're right. I guess I remembered it. She has won a, a Golden Globe before. Wow, Michelle Williams really on that Glenn Close and that Benning track of just never, always being nominated, never winning. Also, on a related note, Diane Warren received her 14th nomination. Yes. <laughs> but I realized... She did get an honorary Oscar this year right. at that Governor's Ball. Not Governor's Ball. Wait, that's the music festival in New York. No, but it is the Governor's... It's like the Governor's Luncheon or something. Ceremony, yeah. Where it's basically like the Academy has some sort of event. Well, I guess last year they gave it to Diane Warren, but the year before it was like Leave Oldman, Samuel L. Jackson. And then they always like show up at the Oscars and are honored. But she... Yeah. So at this Oscar, she'll be honored in that capacity, but she's also nominated. If Diane Warren was ever to win an Academy Award, they have to do it like when Susan Lucci finally won a daytime Emmy and Shamar Moore was like, the streak is broken! <laughs> Susan Lucci! That was so incredible. Also, to round out, speaking of potentially amazing award show moments, to round out the category, Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once, I am predicting Kate Blanchett will win, but she will give her Oscar to Michelle Yeoh. I think Michelle Yeoh is going to win because I think Kate Blanchett <laughs> tanked that at the Critics' Choice Awards. Right. That's my theory, but we'll see. Best Supporting Actor, Brendan Gleeson, Brian Tyree Henry, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans. I will say, Judd Hirsch, one of those like 
five minute smoke show performances that I think he he should get the Academy Award. But Barry Keoghan and Ki Hoi Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. He has won all the awards. I assume he will also win the Oscar and give a very heartwarming speech. Well, (laughs) he will deliver the closest to that Roberto Benigni moment. Like I can see him jumping over chairs. These are the joyous Academy Award moments I miss. Yeah, but half of that was Sophia Loren being like, Roberto! (laughs) I baby! Best Supporting Actress, Angela Bassett. So she's winning, right? I'm sorry to everyone else that is nominated. I'm just going to stop there. Angela Bassett's nominated. She's winning. I don't know the actress name, but I'm glad that the daughter from everywhere... Wait, fuck. Everything, Everything, Everywhere, everywhere, All all at Once got nominated. The daughter and Jamie Lee Curtis did. Whereas at the Golden Globes, the daughter was snubbed. And it's like more about the daughter. Absolutely. Not that Jamie Lee Curtis and her like lesbian hot dog fingers weren't incredible. If it has to be one of them. Yeah, I don't know if Jamie Lee Curtis needed to be nominated. But I'm glad to see her there. Anyway, Angela Bassett's going to win. Shall we talk about the costume nominees? Absolutely. So we have Ruth Carter for Wakanda Forever, which she won for it last time, or she won for the last Black Panther movie. Correct. So kind of boring for her to win again, although I do think this film is probably the best in the category. Then we have Catherine Martin for Elvis. She's won for two other Baz Luhrmann movies, so it's like, okay, sure. Then we have Mary Zofries for Babylon, Jenny Beaven, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which loves some recognition for, for our film, for our favorite film of the year. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. So much for our viral grassroots campaign for this movie. <laughs> but of course, she has 10,000 Oscars, too. And then this I love, Shirley Carrada for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I didn't know that she did the costumes for that film. I'm a fan of hers because she's been styling Rodarte's fashion shows and lookbooks oh. for like a decade now. And she owns that store, Virgil Normal, which is in East Hollywood. Oh, amazing. So... It's really cool to see a newcomer in this category because everyone else in this category has either won or been nominated several times. That's the interesting thing. When you get to the costume, makeup design, those are award categories where you see the same kind of five people. So I agree. I feel like it's good to see new blood in there and it would be nice if uh, someone who's never been nominated before actually wins. Yeah, and I think she'll pull a really good quirky... Look, costume designers are always the best dressed people at the Oscars, whether or not the general public wants to accept that or not. Yeah. Also, a couple other random things. I was excited to see that the Nan Golden documentary, which we still haven't seen, got nominated in the documentary category. That's exciting. Also, we really urgently need to see EO, which got nominated in the best foreign film category, which is about the life of a Polish circus donkey, and it stars Isabelle Huppert. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And it was on John Waters' best of list for 2022, like the annual art form list that he does. So we need to see this film. And what was surprisingly not on best international feature film was RRR, which has won one at the Critics' Choice Award and one at the Golden Globes and was shut out for here. That is supposed to be an absolutely incredible bonkers three-hour film. Okay, cool. I'm down. Are we ever going to see the whale or are we just... Yeah, we're going to see the whale. We're going to see the whale. It's just been... I've been busy. I've been busy either working or refusing to leave my house. (laughs) You know? It's like if I'm not doing one thing, I'm doing the other thing. It's hard to get it up to be depressed for two hours. We're already having like the dreariest winter in L.A. We're already kind of depressed. Do we need to be more depressed? But I mean, if this award season has taught us anything, it's that it's not Brendan Fraser. It's Brendan Fraser. Oh, really? Yes. He's he's made a big point about this. He's like, look, it was... It was bad enough I was sexually harassed by the head of the Hollywood Foreign Press, but for 20 years, people have been saying my last name wrong. And, you know, if I could get one thing from this award season, please, it's ra- it rhymes with razor. Moving on, shall we get into some calls? Let's do it. Hey, ladies. Um, this is my first time calling the hotline. I've had your number on a post-it in my office for forever, but 
I now have actually a question that I would like to ask you that I think is going to be interesting for everyone to hear. Um, but I just looked at some of the images from the new Scaparelli Couture, and there's a lot of people upset that, you know, they're using the images of animals, even though they're fake, even though they're sculpted and made with silks. People are saying that it's glorifying, like, hunting, hunting like, trophy hunting. And I just want to know what your opinions are on that. What do you think? Do you think it's cruel, even though it's fake? Or do you think it's cool? What's your opinion? I don't think anyone is going to poach a lion because Kylie Jenner wore that dress. That said, (laughs) Daniel Roseberry was clearly inspired by taxidermy, not living animals. So I understand why people are icked out. Like taxidermy is inherently creepy. And if this collection isn't your cup of tea, that's cool. And I get that. But I think it's preposterous to suggest that this collection could inspire people to go trophy hunting. Yeah, I mean, when I think about modern day trophy hunting, I'm thinking about Trump's sons and something tells me that they're not (laughs) looking at Vogue Runway in the way that we are. Yeah, like the backlash to this suggests that he actually like went out and killed Mufasa (laughs) and then (laughs) made this dress. Again, you can look at it as a nod to Scaparelli's own work with big game animals, right? Most famously, she had the leopard hat. But Scaparelli's designer, Daniel Roseberry, says the inspiration came from Dante's Inferno, where in the first cycle of Dante's journey, he confronts a lion, a leopard, and a she-wolf. Yeah, he's telling a story. But you know what? I think that the problem with these animal heads is that they were too realistic. Yeah. And this reminds me of the cancellation of Kathy Griffin. (laughs) Because Tyler Shields took this photo of her, bad photo, might I add, of her holding this realistic mannequin. I don't know what to call it. A Trump head. It was Trump's head. Covered in blood. Yes. And it looked too realistic. The head looked too realistic. So that people responded to that in a way that I don't think the artist intended per se. I think there was supposed to be a degree of satire that came through. But like with Scaparelli, if these animal heads looked slightly less realistic, I don't think that people would have gone to trophy hunting. Like we forget that Chanel, one of those couture collections, some model, some male model came out with a lion head. This was maybe like 10 years ago. Right. No one said anything. No one cared because the lion head looked like something you would see at the ballet. It didn't look like an actual animal. Look, I think it's a successful stunt. I just think it's ugly. I will say I love how they were able to sidestep PETA's wrath, who oddly fucked with it. They said the the look celebrates lion's beauty and may be a statement against trophy hunting in which lion families are torn apart to satisfy human egotism. These fabulously innovative three-dimensional animal heads show that where there's a will, there's a way. Although on their social media yesterday, they added Scaparelli and Kylie Jenner were like, yeah, that was great. But, you know, this creativity must extend to them being 100% vegan and exclude sheep shorn bloody for wool and silkworms boiled alive for silk. So PETA's still gonna PETA. There's two schools of thought around the fake fur debate, right? There's people that think that the use of any fake fur ultimately glamorizes fur and that leads to animals being harmed and then there's people that think we need to replace real fur with fake fur and that's the solution and I'm of that school personally and I think that the Scaparelli show this is the most extreme example of fake fur that I've ever seen really yeah I just think that it was a stunt that was so successful, it just dominated the conversation so much that it overshadowed the entire collection as a whole. That was definitely unfortunate. Because I do think that it was a good collection. Did you see the models in Goldface? The singular model in Goldface, yes. Yeah, I think it was a really beautiful collection, uh, generally. And I think the backlash to it is a little over the top. I understand if vegans want to hate on this collection because they actually walk the walk. But if you're sitting around eating Chick-fil-A, talking (laughs) about how this fake lion head exploits animals, then I think you need to do some like internal work about your role in the world. There's nothing to actually be mad about because 
they were made out of foam. Again, I just, I think they're ugly. <laughs> See, I don't think they're ugly. I think they're fab. Kylie Jenner's look to me and also Doja Cat at this show were like Met Gala worthy looks at a fashion show, which I think is unusual. Even the fact that Doja Cat, it took her, what, five hours of Pat McGrath's team, like hand applying those crystals to her body. She woke up at 4 a.m. It looked incredible. It was so worth it. Although it did look like she had a very glamorous skin disease. Yes. It's like, get to the dermatologist. Speaking of Kylie, should we get into the next call? Sure. I couldn't help but be mesmerized today by the coverage of the Paris Oak Couture shows, but I could not get over the photographs of the Scaparelli show with Kylie sitting next to Marissa Berenson, like Kylie in that full, like, lion's head. What do you guys think they were talking about? Like, what could they possibly have been chatting about? Do you think, like, with Kylie asking her about, like, being in Barry Lyndon or being directed by Bob Fosse in Cabaret. Do you think that Kylie knew that Marissa Berenson is Elsa Scaparelli's granddaughter? I'm just dying to hear like a little more information about what you think. Bless this fuckette. You are us. We are you. Because this is exactly what I was wondering as well. Yeah. So the clip is of Marissa Berenson getting a selfie with Kylie, which immediately went viral. And most were discussing it, thinking that Marissa Berenson was some like old eccentric couture client and not the fashion icon that she is. Yeah, I think Kylie Jenner knows that Marissa Berenson was a big model back in the day. I think someone must have given her, at the very least, that information. I don't think she knows about her acting career, and I definitely don't think that she knows that Elsa Scaparelli is Marissa Berenson's grandmother. Does Marissa Berenson know who Kylie is? I don't think so. Right? I think she just wanted a photo of her and the fabulous lion head. I think if she had the last name Kardashian, Marissa Berenson would have figured it out and been like, oh, it's like one of them. Right. But I don't think Marissa Berenson has any idea. And that's why it's like the seating is just so good. Just having Marissa Berenson between Kylie Jenner and Doja Cat. And then the fact that they sat... Kareen Reutfeld next to Sylvie from Emily in Paris and they were basically wearing the same outfit it was just like so joy sparking to me it was so good yeah so has Kylie seen Barry Lyndon I mean I just saw Barry Lyndon so I'm gonna go no but do do we think Kylie knows who Bob Fosse is no I don't think she knows who Bob Fosse is I think Kim knows who Bob Fosse is you don't know I mean Kylie when she was pregnant with Air as we know his name is now could have watched uh, Fosse Verdon she could be a Ryan Murphy fan that's true also by the way if you haven't seen Fosse Verdon watch immediately it's not Ryan Murphy but it, it is the best of all of those limited series about random fabulous famous people that we fuck with i absolutely loved that the production design also is insane and michelle williams chef's kiss always i do want to say i am otherwise agnostic about kylie but i see to talk about her look at the margella show like gorgeous her makeup Chell, I actually saved her makeup look because I want to do my makeup like that i have been influenced by kylie kylie jenner's glow up has been so extreme the degree to which it has overshadowed kim in such a short period of time is stunning well also the precision to rebrand yourself in the matter of five days essentially which is what she's doing through her appearances at couture week is worth studying well she started this at paris fashion week like the last like normal fashion week but she's clearly continuing also i do want to say kim also looked really incredible this week i think the outfit that she wore to harvard business school is the best (laughs) outfit she's ever worn well this was my pitch to you when we were discussing like what is her stage after Balenciaga I feel like she should do like a full suited Victoria Beckham the row beat I think she's gonna wait until she actually becomes a lawyer to do that but I do think that that's like 
planned down the line as it should be before we move on i just want to touch on this manufactured outrage of that clip of kylie seeing irena shank in the same outfit she's wearing which is like it's just kylie nodding and not even in a bitchy way it's like the way you would when you're at a fashion show and you know all the cameras are on you and she's just like processing like okay yeah yeah like there's no way kylie didn't know she was wearing a look that would be featured on the runway but i do think it was weird that there was two, that they made two of them. Right. I guess because of the storytelling, it sort of needs to be in the show if these animals are all an integral part of Dante's Inferno. But I feel like it should have been something different, although it was amazing in its own way, seeing her in something just ripped from the runway like that. I will say the only bummer of that narrative of Kylie Jenner at the Scaparelli show was I do feel like it overshadowed a bit Joja Cat's like commitment to the fucking bit. I don't know. I don't even know if it did because I feel like that was all over my feed. I feel like I didn't see anything but Doja Cat and Kylie Jenner for a full day. But Doja Cat must be thrilled because no one's criticizing her. No. For looking like some high fashion version of Pinhead. Ooh. Next call. Hi, this is Brody from Australia. I'm very curious to know, Chelsea, how you define a rock and roll brand. On the latest episode, I was listening and wondering when you said that you would kill yourself if Gucci went the way of Celine and formerly Saint Laurent and became a rock and roll brand. And it just made me think of like John Barbados and that tragic store in the old CBGB space in New York. Um, and I, I don't know what a rock and roll brand is. And rather than Googling it, I would love for you to, um, define it for me. Hi Brody. I absolutely love this question. (laughs) Okay. I think there's multiple facets to the rock and roll brand. Firstly, there's brands where the DNA of the brand is based on clothes that the Rolling Stones wore in the sixties and seventies. So that's like either about like a skinny suit with a skinny tie, or it's about like a fur coat with like velvet hip huggers and a skinny scarf or some shit. And that you mentioned, and you mentioned John Varvatos. That's obviously a big one. Any brand designed by Eddie Slimane is a rock and roll brand. So Dior back in the day, Saint Laurent, Celine. There's also the Couples, which is the more accessible rock and roll brand. I don't know if they have that in Australia. And then there are brands like Chrome Hearts and Philip Pline, which are more Euro trash and are kind of all about like leather jackets and skull motifs and crosses and shit. See, that's what I was going to say. I define a rock and roll brand as a state of mind. To me, it is the nexus of where rock star and Euro trash meet. Like I think of the D squared fashion shows in yes. the early aughts. Yes, D squared definitely falls into this category. Also, another facet of the rock and roll brand is highly LA specific and it's people who sell thousand dollar deconstructed jeans at either Maxfield or Fred Siegel oh I thought you were gonna say the thousand dollar band tee well that that too but actually I think the brand Amiri which is another one of those kind of euro trash rock and roll type brands I believe started selling like very expensive jeans at Maxfield. So here's hoping Gucci doesn't become that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I don't even hate rock and roll style. I just don't know about rocking like a head to toe look in 2023, you know? Like I feel like now in fashion, it's a better time to sort of like emulate maybe some like new wave artists. Like it's better to look like David Byrne than Mick Jagger right now. But I think that's because of like the way that the fashion pendulum swings and the early 2000s was so much about that Rolling Stones, Anita Pallenberg by way of Kate Moss look. It was like the Alexander McQueen skull scarf. It was that thing. So I think everyone just is still sick of that. God, I hope so. And also it's just it's such a skinny silhouette which just doesn't work for everyone, especially men. Like, not all men. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> not all men should wear skinny jeans. Frankly, I say no man should wear skinny jeans. Yeah, or like if a man is buying a suit, it's like it's like not everyone looks good in like a skinny Saint Laurent suit, you know? It's a very specific kind of person that looks good in that. And I feel like you do have to kind of walk the walk. A rock and roll brand is a state of mind, but if you're going to do it, you got to walk the walk. 
Exactly. Hi, ladies. I'm majorly shook about the scenes that have surfaced uh, with Aiden smoking on set with Carrie. Do we think this is like some kind of a weird dream, like of, you know, what had happened if Carrie ended up with Aiden instead of Big? Um, is it po- is that possible or are they really just putting them back together and Aiden is suddenly smoking and all their problems have gone out the window? So confused. Thanks so much. Love the podcast. Bye. Okay, so I don't think Aiden is a smoker now. I think the set footage captured by Mick Mick NYC caught the actor, John Corbett, getting into a set vehicle that was probably taking him back to his trailer with a cigarette hanging from his mouth. There's there's three explanations here. One, Aiden <laughs> has taken up smoking, which would make me like him so much more. Like the love that I felt for Carrie after she started smoking, that would be quadrupled if Aiden started smoking because it would show that like, look, he had a rough divorce. He took up smoking. He's in a bad way. Carrie will help him quit or whatever. He can look at Carrie and be like, you know what? I was wrong. You were right. Smoking's incredible. It feels good. (laughs) I look so much cooler. So it could be that, which would be really funny and unexpected. Or I think your theory is probably the most plausible. <laughs> or they could be throwing us off in the funniest way possible. Okay, go on. Well, in the way that they stage photos just to sort of keep the fans talking and to make them look a, d- a different way. They could be doing that to us. And by us, I mean the fans, not just you and me. I'm not that the, the delusional. Ro- the royal us. So <laughs> the scene that was captured is Sarah Jessica Parker and John Corbett were filming the other day. Shows Aiden approaching Carrie at a cooking homeware store. They each have their own semi-filled basket. So it leads me to believe that they aren't shopping together. So now this is my prevailing theory about Aiden's return to Sex in the City. One, I wonder if this is a dream episode where, like, Carrie gets surgery again and she's just thinking about an alternate life, or if it's going to be that episode of Girls where Hannah and Adam reunited in the final season and they realize by the end of the episode that what they had is gone and they don't really have anything to talk about anymore. Right. Like, she gets hyped on the idea of being with Aiden again, and by the end of the episode, it's like, oh... I could see that. By the way, any yet again, anyone that is listening that is connected to HBO Max um, would love to know when this is premiering, would love to get screeners for this. <laughs> You're just putting that out to the universe. Yeah, manifesting it. <laughs> Hi, my name's Winslow. Um, I am calling because there's something in the intro that I laugh at every time I watch the show. And that's Carrie's uh, bus advertisement that says, Carrie Bradshaw knows good sex, asterisk, asterisk, footnote, and is not afraid to ask. But what is the question being proposed? What does that mean? She's not afraid to ask for good sex, or she's not afraid to ask about good I, I'm not sure. I thought maybe you'd have some insight on what the message there is. Okay, so the full bus ad reads, Sex in the City, every Wednesday in the New York Star, Carrie Bradshaw knows good sex and isn't afraid to ask. So what do you think that means, Chell? Well, it's not really subjective. It's a specific (laughs) reference. (laughs) So in the late 60s, this psychiatrist named David Rubin published this book called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, Asterix, but we're afraid to ask, which is an absolutely brilliant title. And I think because of this brilliant title, it became a huge bestseller. And then a few years later, Woody Allen made a film of the same title that basically parodied this book. Yes. Um, And there's a very famous scene where he's dressed like a sperm and it's one of his more well-known films. So that's the origin point of this. I've always taken it to mean she's not afraid to ask the tough questions about what makes for good sex or how to get you, the reader, the good sex that you want. But 
Um, having done our 10,000 hours in Sex in the City, I would just like to ask, does Carrie actually know what good sex is? Because she's anti-sex worker, she's anti-kink, <laughs> she's biphobic, she's anti-blowing the Worldwide Express guy in the privacy of your own office. Look, I think you can be vanilla and know good sex, but... Just from what I've seen on the show, I believe that Samantha knows good sex. Absolutely. If anyone knows good sex, it's her. And Charlotte, too. Yeah, Charlotte's a little freak. <laughs> Love her for that. I remember from the first season of and Just Like That, which a lot of it I had blocked out, but when they auction off a date with Carrie, she's horrified to be referred to as a sex columnist. So I think she considers herself like a love and relationship columnist. Right, but if you have sex in the title of your column, it's a reasonable assumption. I also like that she is wearing the infamous naked dress in the ad. So I like to think in the world of Sex in the City that Carrie took that dress from this New York star shoot and just has worn it in real life because she oh, wears yeah. it on her date with Big. Also, Sarah Jessica Parker herself would borrow this same dress in, to wear to the 1997 VH1 Fashion Awards. Yeah, there's a lot of history in this this single ad for Sex in the City. Also, I think we've mentioned this on a previous episode, but we should note that the title of Carrie's column, Sex in the City, is also a reference to a book, which is Helen Gurley Brown's Sex in the Single Girl, which also came out in the 60s. And she was very much the, uh, the Carrie Bradshaw of her day. She she is deserving of her own Patreon episode because she was mm, quite a woman. Yeah, yeah. We should just read her book, Having It All. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's really funny. Is Helen Gurley Brown the one where it went viral what her diet was, where it's like boiled probably, egg, cigarette, yeah, probably. coffee? Well, she had an eating disorder, which is very clear. Yeah. Um, but she also was just a very smart and charismatic woman. And the woman responsible for single-handedly writing all of the incredible cover lines on Cosmopolitan magazine throughout the, the 80s, 70s and 80s. And she was the woman that got Burt Reynolds to pose like he was a Playboy model, nude. I'll put nude in quotes. His bits are covered up in, uh, in Cosmopolitan. Mother, honestly. R.I.P. legend. Yeah. That's not what you asked, but. <laughs> anyway, right. moving on. Hi. Uh, my name is Rebecca. I'm calling from San Francisco. I am late to the party, um, and I wanted to thank you guys first and foremost because uh, you helped get me through chemo last year. I listen to you guys all the time, and I'm good now, not to worry, but really, really wanted to thank you. Um, huge Sex and the City fan here. Now that I started listening to you, um, something popped up on my YouTube as a recommendation which is Cynthia Nixon winning the Emmy in 2004, um, where she was presented the Emmy by none other than Simon Cowell and Donald Trump. You may have already discussed this. I've only listened to probably 25 of your podcasts, but I will listen to them all. But anyway, I just want to let you know that that popped up Donald Trump presented Cynthia Nixon with her Emmy, and I was so delighted to see that she did not embrace him in any way when she went up to accept it. Anyway, life is weird. Uh, thank you guys so much. Big fan. Bye. Holy shit. I'm so glad you are feeling better. Uh, as we like to say on this podcast, fuck cancer. Yeah, fuck cancer. So we did know that Cynthia Nixon won her first Emmy and it was presented by Donald Trump and Simon Cowell, who were at the time the biggest reality star hosts. Um, sorry if this is Jeff Probst erasure. <laughs> we also asked Cynthia about this one of the times that we interviewed her and I completely forget what she said. I'm sure she made a joke about it or something, but she has said in other interviews that, yeah, she regrets that this is the person that gave her her Emmy, although obviously no one was in control of that. Yeah, and I don't think it's an active diss because she doesn't greet Simon Cowell either, but Cynthia Nixon is a true New Yorker and Donald Trump was and continues to be one big New York joke. No, it's true. But it actually was a big Emmy win for her because 
they had been nominated pretty much every year yeah. since the show came out. They never won. Uh, the supporting cast never won. The supporting cast, exactly. So in the final year that they were nominated, she just, she ended up winning and she assumed that Kim would have won, which, yeah, it's, a, you can't, it's apples and oranges. I know. I mean, that is so tough. I forget because I feel like, award show categories among actresses are a bit more diversified. But there was this era where it was like the three of them were nominated for Best Supporting Actress and like Megan Mullally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that went on for years. But this is why we need to take a cue from the SAG Awards and have a category for Best Ensemble. Absolutely. Like it's crazy that there isn't one in the Golden Globes or the Emmys or anything, Oscars, what have you. It is crazy that she won for the final season. It's obviously for all of her work as an actress because I wouldn't exactly say that season six Miranda is the funniest Miranda, you know, dealing with her mother-in-law's dementia, but a win is a win. Yeah. Hey, this is Veronica. I'm one of your loyal fuckettes. I'm currently re-listening to the Practical Magic episode as I'm driving back home from a long uh, road trip from the East Coast. And it's occurred to me that the witch in the beginning of the movie uh, who gets hanged where the rope snaps is also an extra on a Sex and the City episode, um, the one where she plays someone named Judith McBain, who is fucking Richard Wright, and she gets, like, shoulder-checked by Samantha at the black and white ball right before Carrie and Aiden break up. I thought she looked familiar, and I just confirmed it. Anyway, uh, love you guys. Thanks. Bye. Holy shit. We don't have much to add, but, like, oh, my God, your sleuthing skills. I, every time we watch something that's not related to Sex and the City, I'm like, I should go through IMDb and see if this person was in Sex and the City, and I don't do it, and then every time I don't, I get fucked like this. (laughs) Well, it's just... Such an obscure reference. Like, did this woman even have a line in Practical Magic or Sex in the City? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> she's also in The Devil's Advocate, that Keanu Reeves Al Pacino movie, and she's listed as Menage a Trois woman. So I don't think she had a line <laughs> in that either. So she's a legend, basically. Uh, yeah, I wanted to play this call because I think it really just shows how special our listeners are. <laughs> And just hearing that just warmed my heart on so many levels. Honestly, this call makes me feel like a failure because I'm supposed to be the IMDb and I, I, I've failed all of you and I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, Lauren, you're perfect. Also, we got another call in response to our Practical Magic episode um, in which we sort of discussed that that film is a movie that is all about vibes and not about plot at all. And someone called in asking what we thought of The Love Witch, which I think is another movie that is all about vibes, right? Surprise. I mean, I I don't even mean that in a disparaging sense. I think it's a brilliant movie. No, I was about to say surprisingly, and then I stopped myself. Not surprisingly, you and I saw that film together. Yeah. You have a soft spot for it because it was shot in your hometown. Yes, it was. The Victorian house that The Love Witch, I forget her name, lives in is a couple blocks away from my best friend's house growing up. So yeah, it holds a very special place in my heart. And I think Anna Biller, the director, is kind of a genius and kind of the female Quentin Tarantino in a sense because she's similarly obsessed with those like European exploitation movies. But she spun that out into this very like glamorous feminist story about this fabulous and fashionable witch i don't know how else to describe it i know she's just killing men and looking fabulous and if i remember correctly why it took anna biller so long to make the movie is it's like she sewed all the costumes she put the sets together it's the level of detail in that movie is insane also I think it was shot on 35 millimeters, so it literally looks like one of those movies. I don't think she would go through such trouble to build such amazing sets and costumes and not go the distance with shooting it on film. Yeah, I don't know why she hasn't made another film. God damn you, Hollywood. I know, Hollywood sucks. Oh, going back to the Oscar thing, no women were nominated, by the way, for Best Director. And I think it remains like... well. 
five or seven women have only ever been nominated and only three women have won. And I feel like we need a best director or a best and then best directress or we got to, <laughs> as I said, open up the We no- can't have more gendered categories, Lauren. We had this conversation previously, though. If we get rid of genders in the acting categories, you know it's only going to be men and Kate Blanchett that are nominated. I agree, but... So many people identify as non-binary now. You're right. They're going to get famous. They're going to get nominated. In what fucking category are they going to be nominated in? You know what? You are you are correct. But uh, also, like, they can't have a non-binary category because that, ironically, just creates a third gender. Yeah. You know? Well. Another binary. <laughs> Like, actually, though. Quite literally. It's either, like, we got to get rid of gender or, like, I don't know. I don't know the path forward. I think we got to, as I was saying before, we got to open up the director category to 10. If there's going to be 10 best pictures. I think we also just need to make sure that there's a diverse voting body because then we wouldn't be so worried about only straight cis men winning acting awards. True. If, like, they were to get rid of the gendered categories and like politics itself we got to get the that young diverse voting body in the uh, in the academy voting yeah hi lauren hi shell i literally just called a second ago and i'm currently watching it's complicated the classic meryl street steve martin alec baldwin love triangle movie um with the amazing nancy myers kitchen and design and i don't think i've ever heard you guys talk about Nancy Myers and that whole aesthetic. And I just wonder what you think of it. I mean, I love it. Do you guys love it? Or do you think it's basic? I just want to know, what do you guys think of the Nancy Myers aesthetic? All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay. I'm just going to say, Lauren, you have a very Nancy Myers type kitchen. <laughs> you didn't design it. It was here when you moved in. And you don't stage it like Nancy Myers. Like you don't have a pitcher full of lilac or a bowl of oranges or something. Mostly but, because I would kill it all. But <laughs> but like it has this sort of cabinetry and the hardware and the vibe that one associates with Miss Nancy Myers. Yeah, because my kitchen does have the Nancy Myers white cabinets, white marble, white walls, a chef level stove and range. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can be a millennial and not have been affected by the Nancy Myers aesthetic. Yeah. I, I was going to say, yes, my uh, my vibe kind of leans closer to Nancy Myers than you, but I think we like too much weird knickknacks and tchotchkes to like fully be Nancy Myers. It's not my aesthetic, but I do respect it. And I think that that style of decorating that we see in the films, like something's got to give and what's another one? I guess Father of the Bride is kind of like the OG. Not to be nerdy, but yes. What do you define as a Nancy Myers film? Because her first direct directorial, her directorial debut was Something's Gotta Give, but she wrote things like baby boom father of the bride that her husband directed which directly inspires the plot of something's gotta give where she's a theater writer and her husband used to direct her plays her ex-husband right i think parent trap well yeah parent trap is amazing well yeah my favorite movies that she's written are definitely baby boom and father of the bride but i think if we're to look at her sort of influence on decor i I think we got to look to something's gotta give it's complicated What's the other big one? The Holiday. The Holiday, which I was not as much into, but it's getting a sequel. Oh, really? Yeah. I love the idea of The Holiday, I think, more than I actually love The Holiday. Like, it's it's sort of, like, ambient tell, like yeah. viewing for me. Like, it's like, I'll, I'll put it on and it's there. But I've never been super invested in the characters. I will give it to Nancy Myers because, right, so many films about characters said in L.A., they're screenwriters or directors or actresses. I love that Cameron Diaz's job is she cuts trailers. trailers. <laughs> I, I will say about... Okay, wait. I have a question. Sure. If you're an editor, basically, which is what she is, is would the upper echelon of editors buy you a house like that? Is that real? Oh. I was under the impression that you could make a good, very good living being an editor, but not that kind of 
living, which is sort of like what I would think of as what I would imagine a studio executive or Cameron Diaz. Yeah, Cameron Diaz lives in a mansion, the Pacific Palisades. Do you know who also lives in a mansion, the Pacific Palisades? Nancy fucking Myers. (laughs) Yeah, and we know that because of her Architectural Digest home tour. Or she didn't do the video tour, unfortunately, but we saw the photos. We did, and I will say she has a double island, which my mother speaks of and loves. I am not the biggest fan of this new trend in kitchens over the last decade, where there's just like a there's like a gigantic island in the middle of your kitchen. I feel like it's going to date kitchen design going forward, kind of like when you see those clear cinder blocks, and you're like, "Well, that house was built between '87 and 1991." Yeah, but now it's been long enough that they're fabulous again. They're fabulous again. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think these islands are gonna age well but here's what I will say that I do judge celebrities kitchens for which is and even like really expensive homes her kitchen has two wall ovens and the thing that drives me nuts is what I mean wall of what's a wall oven a, a which is instead of right the range and then you, you there's an oven in there there's a oven in the wall so that you don't have to bend down it drives me nuts when oh, I oh yeah that's nice yes when i see multi-million dollar homes and it's like and i'm still bending down to put a chicken <laughs> in the oven i think not <laughs> uh see i would never even think about that i know you would well i don't cook it up to think about that so you you are the francis mcdormand to my diane keaton and something's gotta give which my personal hack is that, because uh, I love Keanu Reeves, is I'll watch Something's Gotta Give up until the point where he's reintroduced into the film at the farmer's market, and then I'll put on John Wick. Because like that's my <laughs> sexuality. It's like the idea of like John Wick at a farmer's market, and then he leaves me to like murder a bunch of people. Wow. That's sick and twisted, and I love it. Have I revealed too much? <laughs> Perhaps. I think we got to end the podcast. Yeah, let's do it. Um, thank you guys for listening. We will be back next week. And uh, ciao, Roberto. Oh, Roberto. Honestly, we're going to end with Sophia Loren giving Roberto Benigni the Oscar. We still haven't figured out an end bit just yet. That'll Bye. do for now. Bye, guys. Bye. And the Oscar goes to... 